0: Turn with me, if you would, to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, your Bible. We've begun looking in... Titus here at the instructions that Paul gives to Titus regarding the qualification for elders, for leadership within the church. Took a little time to consider the terms that are used in this passage and then in Scripture for what uh, the person who is set in a position of authority over the church uh, is called. We have elders in this passage, we have overseer in verse 7, we also have steward, of course we also have the word pastor or shepherd in other places in Scripture, and even as you look at those terms, there's instruction in each of those, both in terms of their relationship to God's people, their spiritual maturity, uh, the job that they do, the things that they're responsible for before the Lord. And uh, we got really through uh, just the first couple uh, points of focus in verse 6. As it says, namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. And so we looked at uh, just an overarching qualification which would be to be above reproach or blameless and then The marital life of a person who occupies the office of overseer, elder, and then his leadership of his home, his family. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 5 to elders, he said, Therefore I exhort the elders among you, as he's talking to the churches, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, Exercising oversight, there's the overseer. He speaks about motivation, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God. Not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge. And so there's a sovereign uh, direction in each church and a sovereign direction allotment, you might say, of those under the care of the under-shepherds. But then he says this, but proving to be examples to the flock. Proving to be examples to the flock. As we look at Titus 1, verse 7 and 8, we're looking at the character of God's steward, the character of the overseer, not only must he be above reproach with regard to his marriage, his leadership of his family, but verse 7 says, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but positively hospitable, loving what is good, Sensible, just, devout, self-controlled. Verse 9 is connected. I'm going to wait until a later point to deal with verse 9 in the following context. Above reproach, with regard to his marriage, he must be faithful. In his fatherhood, he must be in fact effective. And in his character, he must be godly. He must be an example, as Peter said, to the flock. It doesn't mean he's perfect. It doesn't mean that he never makes mistakes. But as his general character, what is recorded for us in verses 7 and 8 should be true of the person. It was said of Daniel that he was blameless. Nothing could be found against him. That didn't mean that Daniel never sinned. But in terms of an ongoing habit and way of life, Daniel was not chargeable with something. We're given first negatives. The overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. Not, 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 not. And so it's these negatives that we consider first. He says, not self willed. This is God's church, not a man's church. This is Christ's church, not the church of an overseer. And so he is not to be given over to doing his own will. He's not to be self-willed or arrogant, as one translation has it. At the root, someone has said, this being self-willed at the root is a fundamental selfishness that compels one to ride roughshod over others in effort to satisfy oneself. So that's not to be what characterizes the one who leads God's people. Another person describes this arrogance or self-will as someone who Quoting here, maintains his own opinion or asserts his own rights while he is reckless of the rights, opinions, and interests of others. By nature, of course, as sinners, we're all self willed. We all want our will instead of God's being done. And so when we come to the gospel proclamation and the call to follow Christ, what is Christ say, if anyone follows me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So that the very call to follow Christ is a call to deny yourself, to turn away from your own life and your own will. And that, over the course of our Christian life, should grow. Not just for those who are leading God's people, but for all of God's people, but certainly those who are leading God's people. Octavius Winslow, pastor, wrote, he said, But where, where is this self-denying power of heart now to be found among us? How does this I, this same self, creep into all our speeches and into all our doings? If it pleased the Lord to use a minister in his service, what an eyeing is there? It makes a word out of this selfishness. And he's actually applying it to ministers. He says, I converted such a man, and I comforted such a man, and it was my prescription, and it was my receipt, and I did it. And if a Christian do but pray or perform a duty, thus and thus I said, and these words I spoke, did I not uh, tell you so? I told you what would come to pass. Oh, what an eyeing there is among the people. How does this I and self creep into all our speeches and into all of our doings? It's selfishness. And ultimately there's pride there. It's the false teacher, Scripture says, who indulges in his flesh and its desires. He despises authority. He is bold and arrogant and self-willed. Second 2 Peter two ten. He's one who pleases himself and looks down on everyone else and their opinions. And the overseer must recognize, I think it's interesting here that in verse 7, the very description of the overseer is God's steward. A steward doesn't do his own will. He does the work of the master. He is a servant, not a lord. He is an under-shepherd, not the chief shepherd. It's not my will be done. It is your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And as Peter exhorts those elders He calls them to shepherd the flock of God. They are not to lord over their responsibility. They're not to act as lords to God's people because they're not. They're shepherds. So obviously, positively, we're talking about someone who is unselfish, someone who is seeking to be humble someone who's denying himself, he's not treading down the rights or the opinions of others. He has respect for others and a demeanor of humility. That doesn't mean that he doesn't stand for anything or that he's a people pleaser. But he really puts on the Lord Jesus Christ who said, remember Jesus' call, he said, "'Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will will give you rest.'" Jesus' promise to those listening was that there was soul rest to be found in him. If you turn from your sins and confess him as Lord and follow him, then he will give you rest from your sins. And what is this person like that I'm coming to in terms of a master? He says, take my yoke from upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls." For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So the one who leads God's people as an overseer, a steward, is in a word, he's like Christ, who is meek. Meekness is not weakness. It is power under control. And there's a humility, of course, that needs to be expressed because of who we are. This recognizing, not only am I sinful, not only am I a human being, but I am not Lord over God's people. Jesus, of course, exhibited the life and heart of a servant in the Gospels, even when his disciples were arguing about who was the greatest, and Jesus, in his communication with them, said, the greatest among you shall be your servant. So this person who is leading God's people needs to be a servant, someone who serves God. God's people, not doing his own will, but doing God's will and serving God's people when they're in need. Notice, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered. He must also not be quickly overcome with anger. 2 Timothy 2.24, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. So does the person who either is being considered or is in the office of an overseer, do they have a tendency to be angry quickly? Is this part of their character? It's not a sin to be angry in and of itself. Of course, we're given instructions that we're not to be quick to anger in God's word. We also understand that God becomes angry, but he is slow to anger. And so the elder, overseer, steward, pastor cannot be uh, characterized by explosive anger where there's a match that just sort of sets everything ablaze. And I found some helpful uh, teaching from, again, Octavius Winslow, who had a message that he preached called, The God of Patience. He made the point that in one of the prophets, Nahum chapter 1, it says that God is slow to anger and He is great in power and he made a connection between those two. God is slow to anger and great in power. He said, but for the infinite restraint God puts upon Himself, this fallen world could not exist a moment. Mercy withholds judgment, goodness restrains justice, patience curbs power, and thus the patience of God is the salvation of men. He that rules his spirit is better than he that takes a city. God's slowness of anger, His patience towards men, is the ruling of Himself. And so when someone explodes in anger, sometimes people would look at that and say, what's strength and power? It's actually weakness. It's spiritual weakness. Again, it's not a sin to be angry in and of itself. God expresses anger. Jesus was angry at times in the Gospels when they were making merchandise of the people of God and the household of God. In one passage in Mark, it says and Jesus is looking around at those who were looking on with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And then he says to the man, stretch out your ha- hand, and the man was healed. It's not a sin to be angry, but that anger cannot be quickly expressed The circumstances that sometimes arise for an overseer, for an elder shepherd of God's people are such that there is provocation, there is grief, there is difficulty, and so he cannot just suddenly be set off and bring harm to others by his anger. Anger, Ecclesiastes says, resides in the bosom of fools. But a man who leads God's people must be spirit-filled, controlled by the spirit, not controlled by his anger. This practically, I remember a story that I heard from man himself as he was preaching. And I think I've shared this with you before. It was it was impactful when I listened to it, and I know just looking around in the auditorium where he was speaking, there were tears in some of the eyes. As a young man, I was just listening to an older pastor talk about this principle of being filled with the Spirit, and as he described his own failure, he said one day he had told his son to meet him at a certain time. He was going to be at the church building, and his son was supposed to come, and he had some things to do, and so it was important when his son was finished with whatever his responsibilities were to come and meet him. But time passed and he needed to do those, the pastor needed to do those things. And he eventually went out and found his son not coming to meet him, but just kind of playing around with friends. And he was angry. And from the time in the car from there to the street where he lived, the pastor said, I just let my son have it. I told him I had things to do. I told him, I reminded him of what I told him to do. And he said, when I got to the end of my street, I said, get out and walk home. And he said, I went on and I went to do some other things that I was supposed to do. He said, I went on to a couple of counseling appointments. And he said, actually, the way that things happen, he said, I just had an opportunity to meet with some people. And the way he put it, he said, I was such a good pastor to them. I gave them just the right advice and, you know, pointed them in the right direction. I was so compassionate. And he said, he drove home after those appointments. And when he got, in the door, he saw his wife's face, and he said he knew something was wrong. And he knew what it was. And he went to his son's room, and his son was there, had been crying, and he recognized his failure, and he said, son, what I did was not right. Would you forgive me? And would you pray for me that I would be a better father? Pastors aren't perfect. They can be forgiven when they sin in those kinds of ways, but that cannot be characteristic of the man. Paul writes, He must not be self willed, not quick tempered, not addicted to wine. He cannot be controlled by a substance. He's not a drunkard, a person who habitually drinks. He is not to dull his senses or keep himself from being in full control of his mind. Again, he's to be not drunk with wine, but controlled by the Spirit of God, Ephesians chapter 5. It is interesting in Leviticus when Nadab and Abihu offer strange fire before the Lord, the same chapter speaks of requirements for the priesthood that they are not to drink intoxicating beverages. And so there have been, by some, a connection between those two that may have influenced what took place on that day. In his ministry, and this is New Testament times, when We could talk about the nature of alcohol and the difference between then and now, but Timothy himself was abstaining from any kind of use of alcohol, even to the point of personal sickness when Paul gave him some instruction in 1 Timothy chapter 5 to drink some for his stomach's sake. The implication is that Timothy would not have been had Paul not told him to do so, and Timothy was setting an example, certainly for other leaders and God's people, that what controls, what ought to control is not some substance but the Spirit of God. And so, this is by implication indicating that the overseer, elder, or pastor needs to be a disciplined person with regard to what he takes into his body. He must never put himself in a position to be out of control. And even with regard to, as that illustration with Timothy uh, points to, I know that at least in my experience and lifetime, I know of one situation where a pastor was encouraged by his physician to drink some wine because of his health condition. And they may not have known his past, but in his past he had been a drinker. And eventually what that led to was an instance of public drunkenness when he was arrested and brought shame upon himself, brought shame upon his church and Christ. And he apologized and asked for forgiveness, but he knew that that meant he could not lead God's people, and he resigned from the ministry. I read at one point the story of a woman in an article in a Seattle newspaper called Death. The, the, The title of the article was Death, One Drink at a Time. It was about a 38 year old woman who died of liver disease and she chronicled some of her struggle in a journal and she has several dates in February where she's just writing little things but she says among other things I am so sorry I can't stop drinking the next day well I lost my job a few days later I'm drunk again I'm so mad at myself by November of that year, she had died. She just lost control of herself completely. And you know, pastors need to be able to help people who are going through that. They should not be certainly struggling with themself, but with it themselves. And so pastors, not to be addicted, certainly to wine, but able then to, by virtue of control give direction, and help someone out of that kind of a struggle. Notice Paul writes, not pugnacious. It's a word we may not use every day. This means just not violent. Not, one translation has, a striker. Someone who the original word means to be ready with a blow. The idea of being ready to resort to physical force or violence to accomplish your purpose. What did Jesus tell Peter when he was in the garden, do you remember? Put up your sword. If my kingdom was of this world, Jesus said to Pilate, then my servants would be fighting, but that's not the kind of kingdom that Christ has, that's not the way in which we operate. Jesus, of course, is the perfect illustration of someone who was willing to take abuse, and even though he had the power not respond in kind, don't you think I could call upon my Father and receive legions of angels, Jesus said. So he had the power, but even though he had that capability, even just the request of the Father, never mind his own personal power as the Son of God, he refused to use it. And the scripture that came to mind as I was meditating on this point was, it's not by might, it's not by power, it's by my spirit, says the Lord. That's how God's work is done. And the reason that Paul draws attention to this, I believe, is that as a man of God, someone who is leading God's people, there will be times when he does take abuse. There may be mistreatment. And if he's doing his job and he speaks the truth, he, like Christ, will feel the effects of that, certainly from unbelievers, even at times from God's people. He'll be rejected. He'll be held in contempt, sometimes lied about, falsely accused. His motives will be judged. People will talk about him behind his back and gossip about him and slander him. But he cannot be vengeful or vindictive and certainly can't seek to use physical force against those who are treating him sinfully. One author said, elders must handle high emotional, highly emotional interpersonal conflicts and deeply felt doctrinal disagreements between believers. Elders are often at the center of very tense situations, so a bad-tempered pugnacious person is not going to solve issues and problems. He will, in fact, create worse explosions Because a pugnacious man will treat the sheep roughly and even hurt them, he cannot be one of Christ's under-shepherds. Again, you look at Christ and you look at his response in the Gospels, you look at the disciples and their response when they were persecuted. We have abundant illustration in Scripture of those who suffered for the name of the Lord and yet responded in a righteous way. Jesus taught as much, and so did Peter. Peter said, if you're reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer, a thief, or evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. So it's certainly not to respond in kind. What happened when Paul and Silas were beaten unlawfully? <laughs> They're singing in the prison. And though they had rights, and they talked about their rights, they didn't come out swinging. Nor should any person who leads God's people with regard to the controversy he may face with unbelievers or within the household of God. Consider him, the writer of Hebrews says, who endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. He was the Son of God. He spoke the truth. And what was the result? Well, persecution came his way. Strike him, scourge him, slap him, beat him. That's the way of the world. It's not God's way. No, the overseer must not be pugnacious, and his motivation must not be money. He must not be greedy. New translations have it. He should not be shamefully greedy for material gain, not given to filthy lucre, King James has, not pursuing dishonest gain. Of course, Peter talks about that in 1 Peter chapter 5. Money should not be his motive. That's actually the characteristic of false teachers. Look down at verse 10 in Titus 1. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they're upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of... Of sordid gain. This is Balaam's error, who was doing what he was doing for money. And Paul said in First Timothy chapter six and verse nine, "Those who want to give, want to get rich, fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge men into ruin and destruction." For sometimes people say money is the root of all evil. That's not the root of all evil. It's the love of money. That is the root of all evil of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Naaman, because he sought after money, ended up with leprosy. Much better is the spirit of Daniel when Daniel was offered money as a reward for interpreting to the king what was written on the wall. Remember what Daniel did, he said, keep for your your gifts for yourself or give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. Daniel had an opportunity there. He's the only one who knows what's written on the wall besides God. Could he have exploited that for his own personal gain? Yes, he could, but he knew that's not what serving God and representing God is about. And if that's what it becomes about, then you can certainly modify the message or you can withhold what the message ought to be, purely for the sake of money. An author named Alexander Strauch, as he wrote on church leadership, said, "...elders cannot be the kind of men who are always interested in money. They cannot be men who need to control the church's funds and who refuse financial accountability." Such men have distorted spiritual values and set the wrong example for the church. They will inevitably fall into unethical financial dealings that will publicly disgrace the Lord's name. Not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but positively hospitable. So there's part of his character that refuses, that is self-denying, that's not pursuing those things, but there's also this positive aspect of genuine love shown towards God's people and those who come uh, within the household of faith and certainly in his own life. Peter said, be hospitable to one another without complaint. So this is nothing different than is required of all of the people of God, but this ought to characterize the person who's leading God's people so that he is an example to the flock who then extend hospitality as well. Romans twelve thirteen, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. That's the way that we minister to one another. And the word here, hospitable, the idea is this is something that's presently going on. It's a way of life. It's like what Abraham did when someone came to his door suddenly and he recognized, of course, it was the Lord, but he immediately sought to show hospitality. We're told in Hebrews chapter 13 not to neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. And so certainly those who are in the church, but leading the church should be a pastor, an overseer, an elder, a steward, who is reaching out in love through his own home, his own life. Job was like this. Job said, the alien has not lodged outside, for I have opened my doors to the traveler, Job 31. One person said, "An elder, for an elder to be on inhospitable is a poor example of Christian love and care for others. The shepherd elder is to give himself lovingly and sacrificially for the care of the flock. This cannot be done from a distance, with a smile and a handshake on Sunday morning or through a superficial visit. Giving oneself to the care of God's people means sharing one's life and home with others. An open home is a sign of an open heart and a loving, sacrificial, serving spirit. A lack of hospitality is a sure sign of selfish, lifeless, loveless Christianity." Now, we all, I trust, are growing in that. That's not to set a standard too high. But may the Lord help us to grow in our hospitality. Remember how Matthew led people to Christ? He had a meal at his home, and he introduced people to Christ. This is certainly a means of, by which we can express just simple love to people and certainly, certainly show them Christ, and then within the context of the household of faith, we can minister to one another as we show hospitality. But this is the one who is leading us people. The word means to be stranger loving. Someone who loves strangers. Someone who comes in and doesn't, isn't known. The pastor should be reaching out. We all should be, but the pastor should be setting the example. So hospitable. And then loving what is good or love for what is good. Paul doesn't give any further explanation here. It just describes the character of a person who is leading God's people as someone who loves to do what is good. So that means that he's involved in his life in doing good things. And so instead of selfishness, selflessness, instead of seeing money as an object to be grasped at, he sees it as something to be generous with and to give to steward for the glory of God, but also the good of God's people. Instead of proud and arrogant boasting, he loves humility and seeks to be humble. Instead of slander and strife, he loves truth and peaceful relationships. Instead of disobedience and rebellion, he loves honor and respect and submission to God. Instead of ungratefulness, he loves to show thankfulness and gratitude. Instead of pleasure, he's not all about that. He's about denying himself for the sake of being a blessing to others. I like what Job, there's a lot in Job when it comes to his personal life and testimony about what he did. His friends even testified to him, Behold, you have admonished many, and you have strengthened weak hands. Your words have helped the tottering to stand, and you've strengthened feeble knees. And such ought to be the testimony of every person who is child of god and we should be growing in that but again for the leader he needs to set an example in that way hospitable loving what is good sensible word is translated a a, a couple of different ways soberness is one way that word is translated paul said in acts 26 25 when he was accused of being crazy he said i'm not mad most noble festus but i speak forth words of truth and soberness or reasonable words is the idea And so the overseer, someone has said, must not be, I'm quoting here, light and frivolous, but serious, discreet, sober in deportment. Wisdom that is from above is reasonable. And we have plenty of reasons within Scripture to be sober or serious-minded. For one thing, every single person every one of us is going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That ought to immediately sober us. That my life one day will be in full view before the Son of God. I will stand before Him. And so knowing that I'm going to stand before Him means I need to be in right relationship to Him, confessing Him as Lord and Savior, turning from my sin. But then as well as a Christian and as a pastor, What have I been responsible for? What will I answer to him for? And so there's a real seriousness that ought to characterize all of us, but especially the one leading God's people. Spurgeon, as he was giving instruction to younger pastors, he said, Men are dying, hell is filling. And in the context of what he was saying, he was saying, Don't give yourself to focusing on all sorts of other things, preach the gospel, proclaim the truth. But the reality that men are dying and hell is filling ought to sober us. Peter said, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. There's a very real devil. And who does he attack? He might go for the strong ones, but oftentimes it's not the strong, it's the weak. It's the ones who are lagging behind. The devil loves to pick off, just like a lion. And the one who is speaking for God as he proclaims God's word to the people, the one who is leading, needs to recognize the seriousness of the situation. You really don't want a comedian as a pastor. One writer said. You cannot be a clown and a prophet both. You've got to make a choice. This does not mean we shall not be truly human. We shall feel there is something sinful in the natural ability to laugh and the natural exhilaration that comes from a hearty laugh. But the unnatural effort to be a joker amongst our people must be done away. And he says, the transition from the clown to the prophet is a difficult metamorphosis. If seriousness, not fleshly somberness, but true serious, is not the mark of our lives, in our normal contacts with our people, let us not expect that when we ascend to the pulpit, some kind of magical process will immediately cause them to sit trembling before the words of God. You want a comedian? That's really not what the person who is speaking for God is. Jonathan Edwards used the phrase blood earnest. Lives are at stake. Souls are at stake. Doesn't mean we can't laugh. Doesn't mean we can't have a good time. But when it comes down to it, life is serious. There's an eternity that we're about to enter into It's just a short amount of time. Our life is a vapor that appears for a little time and vanishes away. And God gives us enjoyment, doesn't He? There are times where, whether mistakenly or even intentionally, we laugh about something, but when it comes down to it, this is sober truth. We do best to treat it that way. A person who leads God's people certainly needs to be sober. Just Righteous is the next word in the text. Just needs to be righteous in what he does, handling things fairly. That certainly means upholding God's standards of right and wrong. He needs to be ethical in terms of what he does personally. He cannot cut corners. He needs to be a person of integrity when it comes to the matters and affairs of the church. I was reminded of a story the young pastor in the ministry He was very new to the church that he was pastoring. There was a member in the congregation, elderly, a leader among them, and very shortly after this young pastor's arrival, there was someone in the congregation, this older man's daughter, who suddenly went into a lifestyle of wickedness, was a member of the church, needed to be confronted. And so this is someone who had connections with this leader in the congregation. And he said, I just had to, this young pastor said, I just had to look at the situation. And although it was difficult and I didn't know what was going to happen if I pursued church discipline, he said, I just had to do right. That was the saying of Dr. Bob Jones, Sr. Do right, do right till the stars fall. Do right. And when it comes to someone who's leading God's people, they need to do right. That doesn't mean they can never make mistakes, but in terms of their pattern of life and their pursuit, they need to please God, both by speaking what is right and doing what is right. He must also be, notice the next word, devout, or pious is another word we don't use as much. Holy is the idea. A purity of life that's free from sin and defilement. Paul uses this word in 1 Timothy 2, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands. Hebrews 7.26, It was fitting for us to have such a high priest. Holy is the word that's applied to Christ. Devout. Pleasing to God. Godly. This life that he lives needs to be a Godward life. Devoted to God. Fellowship with God. Walking with God. Someone defined devotion in this way. Devotion is neither private nor public prayer, but prayers, whether private or public are particular parts or uh, instances of devotion. Devotion signifies a life given or devoted to God. He therefore is the devout man who lives no longer to his own will or the way and spirit of the world, but to the sole will of God, who considers God in everything, who serves God in everything who makes all the parts of his common life parts of piety by doing everything in the name of God and under such rules as are conformable to his glory. That was William Law. I remember sharing a book by him with someone in person after they read it said, wow, he was pretty serious. Serious and devout call to a holy life. But what happens when you have a leader who's devoted to the Lord? What happens when you have someone who is pursuing and walking with the Lord? Just that life in a home can make a huge difference. Just that life for the spouse, just that life for the children, just that life in a workplace, just that life in a nation. Judges says the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. Joshua. And all the days of the elders who survived Joshua, who had seen all the great work of the Lord which he had done for Israel. And I would say certainly that's because they saw the great work of the Lord. But Joshua was faithful, devoted to the Lord. What happened when those elders left and Joshua was off the scene? Look at Judges and you see that there's a constant going back and forth. But one, one. Person devoted to the Lord, don't ever minimize your life and its devotion to the Lord and the impact that you can have in the lives of others. And even talking about this, even just looking at this particular one, I would just ask for your prayers. For anybody who is leading God's people, we're living in a wicked world. Pastors don't have any different hearts, they're sinful. Does this world have any attraction for someone who is leading God's people? Of course it does. It does for all of us. And so we really need to uphold anybody who's leading God's people, whether this church or any other, and ask that the Lord would work in that person's life so that they will live in such a way that they are consecrated to the Lord, submitted to the Lord, given over to the Lord, loving the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. All of us need to be living that way but certainly the one who's leading God's people. Don't minimize the power of a life devoted to the Lord, but the person who is leading God's people needs to be characterized this way. And that can just boil down simply to regular faithful fellowship with the Lord through prayer, through reading His Word, through just serving the Lord in simple ways. May the Lord help me. And help all of us to remember we need to be devout, devoted to the Lord. Look at the last one here self controlled. Now, if the knots in the first seven are there, not self will, not quick temper, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, there will be self control, but these two things go together. The word means in full control of oneself. So the words that would be synonymous, mastering, curbing, controlling, restraining, is the person leading God's people not, you understand what I mean by this, is he master of himself? Ultimately, the Lord is his master. This is something every believer needs to add to their Christian life. But God's servants, God's stewards, need to be self controlled. As broad as that is, as broad as that is. My junior high homeroom teacher, can you imagine this? She was teaching sixth grade boys to memorize this verse. Like a city that is broken into and without walls is the man who has no control over his own spirit. Why would sixth grade boys need that? Repeatedly. I mean, I, I, it, was, it may, might have been every day. Right? And there are other verses like that in Proverbs. Drawing attention to ruling yourself. Well, I know why it was. We were rascals. And we weren't controlling ourselves. We were doing whatever. And she was trying to rein us in. But the point comes when you come to Christ and you deny yourself and you follow him and his grace works in you to be able to do that you realize that it is not my will that needs to be done it is Christ's will and that's in all of life the fruit of the spirit Galatians 5 is love joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness and then it says self-control Is there ever a struggle to be controlled when a pastor learns of something or knows of something or has some kind of interaction? Of course there will be. There's a reason that Moses struck the rock instead of speaking into it when he, when he was told to speak to it. What did he say when he did that? He was talking to God's people and he called them rebels. There was a struggle he had and you know what he missed the promised land that instance of public disobedience with God's people he missed the pro- he got to see it eventually when Christ was there in transfiguration glory look who who got to see it but he did not control himself that day and so paul in his instruction here tells titus that those who occupy this office need to be self-controlled that takes the spirit of god which again means you need to pray for your pastor you need to pray that that part of sanctification that he's responsible for that he does what he needs to do but there's also the side of the holy spirit that's why paul said in second timothy he said be strong he didn't just say be strong." he said, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strong in grace, because when grace is there, when the Spirit is there, self-control will be there. But when the flesh takes control, we know, we all know, what happens when the flesh takes control. We do fleshly things. We do sinful things. Praise the Lord for forgiveness, but there are times where an act a fleshly act in the moment not only sets a bad example for the people of God, but does harm and it actually may disqualify a man for ministry. And so again, I just appeal to you, certainly pray for those who are leading God's people, that they will be in control of themselves so that the gospel will not be blamed, so that the gospel will not be brought into disrepute, so that Christ will be lifted up so not the scandal of the servants of Christ or the people of God will become the focus, but so that Christ and His gospel and His salvation will be known. And we will just be the ones proclaiming it with lives that imitate our Lord and Savior. May the Lord help us. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, as we bow, We confess, apart from you and your grace, our inability. And so we pray, Lord, that uh, certainly within the household of faith, that we would uh, trust in you, look to you for the strength to do these things, even these standards, which are set forth as qualifications for the leaders among your people, they certainly should be characterizing all of us and so we all have reason to meditate on these things and grow we just pray lord for grace for those who are leading as we consider uh, adding to our leadership whenever we do in the days years to come we pray that we might follow the teaching of your word give us grace lord that as a church we would see Uh, these things in the light of the teaching of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle, and the reason to bring order and to maintain order within the household of God. And we just ask for your grace and your help. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.